Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The U.S., And Canadian negotiators have worked around the clock to clinch a deal together with Mexico. The countries will be transforming NAFTA into the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement or USMCA. Big question, is it just a rebrand or does it involve fundamental change to a region that trades more than $1 trillion annually? Bill Lee joins us now, formerly of the IMF, City and the Federal Reserve, and now the Milken Chief Economist. Bill, good morning to you. Which one is it, a rebrand or some fundamental change to this trading block? John, it's a rebranding of the old NAFTA with TPP elements in it, but also the the fundamental change are the players coming to the table. I think the, the multilateralism dying means that the number of players at the negotiating table are going to be smaller and smaller because Trump really wants to negotiate bilaterally. And right now, you saw exactly how he did it. He did it with Mexico, and then he did it with Canada. And and seemingly doing it with South Korea, and apparently doing it with uh, the Japanese as well, and Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Bill, the big question, I think, for many investors and market participants this morning is we can move on from the NAFTA issue. Futures are positive. It's risk on. What happens with China? Uh, that's the big question, because the, the pattern that we've set with Canada and Mexico really doesn't apply to China. Me- Mexico and Canada are small countries relative to the U.S., but China is going to be a big country trade. And the, the essence of big country trade is how do we open up their domestic markets for our products? And when China says we have products that you can't live without, that is the China made in 2025 agenda, all those 10 strategic sectors that they want to be the dominant player in – they're going to say, you can't live with our stuff. Now, how do I, China, protect my intellectual property rights but gain access yeah. and v- vice versa? That's the new negotiating uh, tactic that is yet to come out. Well, Bill, that's the uh, the breaking news around the trade story. Here's the breaking news around GE. GE naming Lawrence Kolb, the chairman and CEO, the uh, company saying they will fall short of EPS guidance for 2018. The price action in the pre-market, the stock moves lower, down by 4%. That has just crossed the Bloomberg right now. The headline as follows, GE naming Lawrence Cobb chairman and CEO. A very own Tom Keane over in the Washington, D.C. studio as he gets ready to catch up with the IMF chief, Madame Lagarde, a little bit later this morning. Tom, if you can weigh in as the GE stock just rolls over and we get more news from an embattled company over the last couple of years. An embattled company, and it really is going to be interesting to see how they do given the detritus of... GE Finance. Mr. Culp, uh, I, I think a lot of people aren't surprised uh, by this. In fact, the timing is about, uh, I would suggest, about right uh, as uh, uh, well, John. Uh, you know, lead director, fine, and uh, to see what he will do uh, would be instant. But I, I think a lot of people uh, have really been looking for him to come in and do this. This is not a surprise, but the immediacy of it is, which shows how grim it is. Well, in the immediate term, we've got to look at a company that says it will fall short of of its guidance, Tom, Um, fall short of the 2018 EPS guidance, and to record another impairment charge as well. And Tom, is this a question of Flannery just not doing it quick enough? Yes, I would suggest, and I'm speaking as an amateur, and I'd want to speak to somebody more informed, uh, uh, about this, some of the securities analysts, but the timing is the issue. I've said all along 
that, you know, I, I was sitting on a mountainside in Davos, John, a bunch of years ago, and I realized the new five years was three years. Well, you know what? And Bill Lee can speak to this. I'm wrong. The new five years and three years, it's 18 months and you better get going. Yeah. And that's really what we see today. And, and let me add, the, the markets are really punishing GE for failing in financial markets. GE Capital was a, now a disaster, and now they have not found a new place to be dominant in. We see that old industry, the GE powerhouse of power plants and turbines, isn't enough to power GE back into the upper valuation levels that they used to have. Well, I can tell you that rollover in the stock, Tom, lasted about 20 seconds. Um, it rolled over almost 4% in the pre-market. It's now rolled back up, positive 2.3%. Yeah. A positive catalyst <clears throat> for change with a change at the top? I, I, yes, I, I would definitely suggest that. And again, when everyone saw the name Lawrence Call uh, come into the picture at GE uh, with his, you know, with his prestige and with uh, his work at Danaher, yeah. uh, there was just, it was just understood. I mean, a lot of people have even, this is pure speculation. I'm going to get in trouble for this. What do you do? Do you take the best practices of Danaher and merge it with a train wreck of GE and move on? I don't know. I'll let others think of that. But when Lawrence Culp showed up involved with this new GE, that changed the dialogue. Yeah, I can just say for our listeners just tuning in, we have had a series of headlines across the Bloomberg. General Electric saying it will fall short of 2018 EPS guidance to record a charge and Lawrence Colt will become the new chairman and CEO. Initially off the back of these headlines, the stock rolled over in the pre-market. It's now rolled up. It's positive 2.92%. Billy, I just want to get your view quickly on the macro backdrop that should be really positive over the last couple of years for a big industrial conglomerate like GE. Why is GE different to you, Bill? Well, you know, the, the whole essence of a conglomerate are supposed to be supposedly synergies, and I think GE synergies have to be reshuffled to show that the, the, the design of GE will take advantage of the new trade patterns that are yet to emerge. We haven't seen that yet. Well, let's talk about the new trade patterns, Bill. What do you see in terms of the new trade patterns emerging over the next several years? As I see it, the, the, the sectors that the U.S. is doing well in, the service sector, uh, have yet to, 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 to define how it is that we're going to enter the China and EU market at the same time, allowing the Chinese pharmaceuticals, 5G electronics, and electric vehicles to come into the U.S. That is where I think the, the new investment opportunities are going to be for our, our audience out there. But also, I think the key is to bring in <clears throat> sectoral negotiators, because countries no longer trade with countries. It's companies and sectors trading with other sectors. And that's the key to the new 21st century trade framework. And Tom, another headline crossing a Bloomberg that the GE charge to be substantially all of GE Power's $23 billion goodwill. So these headlines just keep dropping. And I've got to say, well, this feels like a kitchen sink situation going on over at General Electric this morning. Yeah, I'll go with that. But you bring up an extremely important uh, point, which is you bring it over to the balance sheet. There are charges that stay on the income statement, and yes, they affect cash flow and all that. But what every company uh, uh, really attempts to uh, avoid are charges that eat into some form of balance sheet. And of course, when you have a tangible or relatively tangible business like GE Power, that goodwill number is an actual, you know, I hesitate to say this, but accountable number. 
And, it's, you know, let me read the, ch- the headline again. It's so important. Charged to be substantially all of GE Power's $23 billion of goodwill. So, John, you can say uh, well, f- with full disclosure that this is a kitchen sink and is a massive write-down as well. Yeah, is it the kitchen sink that much of the market wanted? Just to keep you up to speed on the price action as the headlines come through, GE stock now up by around about 5% in the pre-market. So it's been taken positively at least um, five minutes after the headlines have dropped. Yeah. So if you're just tuning in, GE naming Lawrence Culp, the chairman and CEO, the company saying they will fall short of 2018 EPS guidance. They're recording a charge as well. The stock reacting negatively initially and then rolling up around 4 or 5% higher. Bill, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I'm sorry it was short. Uh, Bill Lee, the Milken Bill Lee securities economist. analyst. And securities analyst, apparently, as well, <laughs> joining us from Washington, D.C. Let's do this, John. Let's bring in Mary Lovely of the Peterson Institute as we talk trade and we talk uh, these strange phrases, multilateral, bilateral, unilateral, and of course, Trump lateral uh, as well. Using NAFTA or the new agreement, uh, uh, Professor Lovely, United States, Mexico, Canada Act, who won? Well, it's hard to say who won. We're just beginning to see the details of the text. We all won to some extent in that we have uh, at least an agreement this morning. Uh, But I think North American consumers basically lost because there are many provisions in there which increase the uh, protectionism versus the rest of the world, specifically in autos, but also in yarns. Uh, And we have no change in the steel and aluminum tariffs. So we see on these main industries we're keeping the protectionist lid on. I was quite taken in my initial reading of this of the gazillion items involved. The, The media thrust, through no fault of anyone, is about this issue or that issue or a third issue. And yet for someone like Christian Friedland or Mr. Lighthizer, what is there, 500 things that they have to worry about? Yes, and they really do focus on a few things. Of course, there was the issue about so-called Chapter 19, uh, which has to do with really just how Canada responds to U.S. Uh, protection on uh, things that it believes there have been dumping or uh, subsidies. So there are particular issues that have really focused their attention. A lot of the other text really is uh, – text that was pioneered for the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations. So they did have some great text to already work with. Within the TPP, Secretary Clinton voted against, Donald Trump voted against, and that you just said they had the language, <coughs> excuse me, they had the language available. How TPP, I love this folks, how it how TPP is USMCA? <laughs> Tom, even that's made me laugh. I drove by the Pentagon yesterday. Come on, so. come on, Mary. How I, TPP I, I, I is USMCA? Well, it does reflect the president's MO, Tom. Oh. Which is to sort of repackage things and brand them under his own name and pretend that they're a lot different than they are. Uh, when they say that this agreement needed modernization, 
basically we had already modernized the agreement through the negotiations of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So they brought in a lot of things from the, say, on e-commerce or on extended intellectual property, uh, pushed it a little bit further with the Canadians and the Mexicans, but basically pulled over the things that were already there. So Mary, this is a new way of doing deals. It is no longer about multilateral agreements. It is about doing things bilaterally and then putting it all together at the end. How difficult is it going to be to take this approach that the president took with NAFTA, to take this approach and apply it to China? Um, I mean, talk to me about how long this could take to really get a deal. I don't even know if we'll see a deal under this president. Uh, I don't think they want a deal. One of the things that's hidden in the, not hidden, it's there in plain (coughs) sight, but hasn't received much attention yet in the agreement that was inked last night, is a provision that neither, none of the countries can sign an agreement with a non-market economy uh, without notifying the others and allowing the other two partners to withdraw. So we can think of this as, you know, don't get in bed with China rule. So we're seeing kind of the horses beginning to circle to isolate China. Uh, Unfortunately, it is being done in a way that also raises protection among the remaining uh, rest of the countries. Mary Lovely, that's brilliant. That's why we love having you here. I mean, within that little line, as an example, Canada could do an agreement with China, but then Mexico and the United States have the ability to leave the USMCA. That's exactly right. They have they and they can they can just pull the agreement. Say we don't want to be in the agreement with Canada anymore. We'll just go on our own. And it it definitely signals the longer game with China. That that's equivalent, John. To if I have a cup of coffee in our Washington studio. You have the ability to leave the show in New York. Unless I'm allowed a coffee in that the would New be York true. studio. But yes. we're not allowed drinks in the New York studio yet. Um, and Mary, here's a question, because J.P. Morgan have come out with a note in the last um, couple of days, and it's got a lot of attention. Their new baseline, the base case, is basically to assume that the U.S.-China endgame involves 25% U.S. tariffs on everything, all Chinese goods, by 2019. Is that the base <clears throat> case at the Peterson Institute for you, Mary, as well? I would say yes, it is. I can't speak for everybody at Peterson, but I would say it's uh, shared by many that that is where we're headed. Uh, This administration seems to think that you create uh, a strong manufacturing base in the United (laughs) States by closing out imports from the rest of the world. Uh, It's hard to see how that raises American productivity uh, or brings more investment here. So yes, this is that that scenario well, is completely consistent with how they're playing the game. I get the microeconomics of a twenty-five percent tax does not fall a hundred percent on Americans, but the headline item is most of that twenty-five percent tax falls on the process and the consumers of America, right? Yes, in autos we looked back at previous episodes and what's unit dynamics do? Unit dynamics. Sales well, of Mercedes go down, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's for sure. Uh, what we also find, though, is about 70 to 100 percent of the tariff is likely to be borne by consumers and, and dealers. You said 75 percent at least. Seven, mm-hmm. Yeah, 70 to 100 percent, which a lot of people have disputed. But, you know, when we look back at the historical record, that's what we see in this area. So I think Americans are well, going to be in for a big awakening when we <clears> hit those tariffs and they look at auto prices. Mayor Lovely, thank you so much, as always, with You're the Peterson welcome. Institute for starting your Washington Day uh, with us uh, as well.
Tom, I've got to say the trade story looking a whole lot smoother than the other story developing in Washington, D.C. over the last several months. And, of course, I'm talking about High Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's Senate testimony last week um, in response to sexual allegations, allegations of sexual assault. I mean, a real politicization of this whole process um, in a way that I've never seen before, Tom. Uh, it's true. I've never seen before, even going back to Anita Hill and before that, Abe Fortas uh, in the 60s. John Farrow and Tom Keene, and now an important conversation with Kimberly Robinson of Bloomberg Law and the Business Intelligence Center. Kimberly Robinson with Parchment from out west, uh, Arizona State, and then, of course, from Columbia University, as well as a practicing attorney. Kimberly, I, I want to go b- bigger and broader here, and with the, in the comedy of the weekend, and I'm going to be direct, the comedy is usually very East Coast liberal, in this case, anti-Kavanaugh uh, biased. There was a hilarious moment where it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and within the comedy, the woman put up a sign, don't die, which was, you know, one view of the Supreme Court. Let's talk about the institution right now. What does the institution do with Kavanaugh or without Kavanaugh forward? Well, you know, this is a a court that really cares deeply about the institution itself and its integrity. And so going forward, we've seen Mm. the justices in the past really try to um, hold itself back uh, whenever it's really put into the political limelight like it is now. And so we see them really having narrower decisions. They don't take as many hot button issues. Uh, But that's just in the short term. In the long term. Right. Uh, you know, the, it's going to be a harder question. Does the court run at 4-4? I mean, if we get to the politics of the midterm election and all, how is it different for Ruth Bader Ginsburg? How is it different for Clarence Thomas if it's an 8 people court and not a nine people court. Well, we heard about this whenever uh, Republicans held open the seat uh, that is now filled by Justice Gorsuch. The court had just eight justices for a number of months. And so uh, we heard from the justices themselves that it really takes a lot of collaboration. um, And that Mm -hmm. can be frustrating for them. They don't get to decide the issues that they uh, really wanted to. A lot of times they have to decide these side issues. Um, So in some ways, that's good. It makes them collaborate a little bit more. But it, it doesn't allow the Supreme Court to operate as it normally does. Jen Farrow, uh, in a really smart moment this morning, emphasized that for the rest of the world, this is just completely foreign. There's something unique about the judiciary within our executive, legislative, and judiciary tripod. Is that leg of the tripod, is it shaking? Is it quaking? Or is it just removed from all the politics that we observed last week? Well, I think it's definitely uh, been threatened with this confirmation process. But it's important to remember that this isn't the first time that the Supreme Court's been right. uh, thrust into the political limelight. You know, sometimes. So what happened after Anita Hill? What happened after Abe Fortas? And even if with Noah Feldman Scorpions, we go back to the FDR court stacking that we saw in the 30s. What actually happens? Well, you know, again, it's up to the court to really pull itself back, to stay out of these really big, contentious issues, to uh, restore faith in the American people again and get back to kind of its regular work. And that, you know, a lot of times isn't as sexy um, as we've been accustomed to from the Supreme Court, but that's really a majority of what the court does. Can Judge Kavanaugh continue forward if he becomes a Supreme Court judge or he continues his present duties? Do you have a, I, I don't want to get you in a difficult position here, but is that something that pros like you are considering? 
I've been really struggling with how to cover uh, Judge Kavanaugh if he becomes Justice Kavanaugh, uh, in part because of the political um, nature of his speech. And I think we'll see going forward people try and get him to recuse himself on very politically charged issues. Whether or not he will do so um, will remain an open question. Um, But, you know, it's hard uh, to cover somebody who's so purposely interjected politics into the judiciary. Did he do that or did other people do it for him? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think what I'm talking about is the explicit nature of um, him inciting uh, the Clintons. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I see your point that there, there, there is always uh, politics underlying these confirmation yeah. battles. Uh, that's nothing new from, from no. this nomination. Thank you so much. We really value uh, actual pro-perspective on some of these issues away from the punditry. It goes on. Kimberly Robinson with Parchment from Columbia University uh, writing for Bloomberg Law. and We really value this. And I can speak here in Washington at Greg's store and uh, so many others of our legal effort uh, at Bloomberg, which is just really a tour de force to say uh, the least. Now we speak to somebody within the trenches of getting things done at the International Monetary Fund. Avi Selassie out of the London School of Economics and Economic History uh, in his Ethiopia. has done the tours of duty uh, in Africa, and he joins us now as we look at what he has entitled the Africa Century. Wonderful to have you uh, with Thank us you. today. I want you to explain to our, particularly our American audience, you're a minted, degreed economist. You go before the IMF quaking, and you're lucky enough to get a job. What's the process in a region within the IMF? Do you start out like getting coffee for somebody, and then what do you do? What do you what do you do three years on, seven years on, ten years on? So, you know, I joined uh, through what we call the Economist Program, which is the standard uh, intake program that we have at the IMF. For you drank the Kool-Aid and, you know. Some. <clears throat> bit. So, you know, we start out by doing a lot of data crunching. Uh, yeah. We work on all kinds of uh, countries initially. You do a, ra- a tour of, ra- you know, around the world, basically. You were in Uganda at one point. I lived in Uganda much later in my career. But when I started mm-hmm. out, the first country I worked on was Kenya. Yeah. Then moved to another department to work on Estonia, Romania. Thailand, a whole mm. bunch of series of countries as you're growing up the ranks and learning how to work with you know, low-income countries, right. uh, emerging markets, and uh, advanced countries. I'm going to open my uh, conversation with Madame Lagarde today and must as you attend Bali uh, on Indonesia, on mm. the earthquake, on this horrific tsunami, and uh, the things we don't know on a Monday morning in America about this death and this destruction. What's the number one thing the media and people in general get wrong about your International Monetary Fund? I think it is this perception that we are simply very technocratic and don't think and care about the outcomes uh, that uh, that we uh, that economic policy is meant to engender. You know, we spend most of our time actually focusing and thinking about how to how to ensure countries developing countries, mm-hmm. for example, can grow in a sustainable and more, as importantly, equitable way. Uh, so that's an important focus of our policy advice, our work. Uh, the perception right. too often seems to be that we are all about making sure the numbers add up, but we want to right. make sure that they add up in a way that actually improves uh, standards of living. So I Salasa, you wrote an important paper, The African Century. Are we in the African Century or does it wait with that explosive 
demographic economics? I, I think, you know, this is the African century, this uh, 21st century. Uh, and two reasons for that. I think first is that by as, as soon as 2030, half of the annual increase in uh, global labor force will actually be coming from sub-Saharan Africa, half of the annual labor force increase. What does that mean? That means that any economic activity of scale will need to happen in sub-Saharan Africa because that's where the labor Where will the investment come from? I mean, is it China, China, China? No, I, hopefully it's not just China, but a range of other countries. I don't know if you've seen uh, today's piece in Wall Street Journal, for example, talking about the car industry now shifting its focus in Af- to Africa because that's where the demand is. So you're seeing companies mm-hmm. like uh, Peugeot, uh, Volkswagen, right. all focusing there. So China is a story, but you're seeing uh, all the emerging EMs, the mm-hmm. large EMs, you know, Turkey, uh, India, Brazil, also all uh, beginning to focus in, in, in Africa. How do you respond to what Bill Easterly and Jeff Sachs can agree on, two people, two economists, folks don't agree on maybe the money allocation to, third, uh, to, to EM and to frontier economies. But how do you respond to the pernicious corruption that is within Africa, and frankly, around much of the world? Is, is it improving or how do we improve what seems to be embedded corruption? So, I, I, look, um, I think it's important to... to uh, Think about Sub-Saharan Africa as having, you know, still having fairly weak institutions in terms mm-hmm. of uh, in terms of economic governance, in terms of political governance. So corruption is a problem, uh, but. Certainly, I think it's much more uh, better. I mean, it's uh, ameliorated considerably relative to the 1980s and 90s when institutions were weaker still. Right. Uh, otherwise, I don't think you would have seen this uh, tre- you know, tremendous increase in growth that we've seen in the region over the last uh, 25, 30 years. And that, to me, I think I, you know, uh, has a lot to do with the improvement in political governance. We have uh, a lot more constrained uh, leaders than you did in the 80s and 90s. By no means mm-hmm. are... are uh, you know, democratic and uh, sorry, political and economic institutions perfect, but they certainly have improved right. considerably. I must ask about Ebola and the distress that we see just in the last number of weeks about some form of reformation of it. I understand WHO, World Health Organization, does a lot here, but you are on the watch with the IMF in attempting to assist these countries mm-hmm. with Ebola. Describe what you accomplished and where are we now versus uh, the huge fear over Ebola of a number of years ago. Okay. So, uh, you know, the Ebola outbreak of 2014 was by far the most uh, threatening, I think, both to the region and uh, more globally. That one... Um, was a little unique in that uh, before that all the Ebola outbreaks had been mm-hmm. in uh, DRC, uh, Uganda, where uh, health workers and governments knew how to handle it quickly. The 2014 outbreak was in, in was in West Africa, where there hadn't been that experience of uh, early detection and uh, treating. That's why it uh, roiled the whole uh, Mano River Basin countries, Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. Uh, the latest outbreak is in DRC, uh, and we've had two outbreaks, one in the summer and another recent one. The summer one uh, was put out uh, fairly quickly. This one is in a bit more uh, in an area where there's a lot more uh, conflict going on and is of some concern. Um, but, you know, the frontline workers are the ones that are handling it, and we come in and try and support countries uh, when it gets right. to scale, and uh, and they ask for balance of payments assistance. If you're just joining us, Avi Selassie with us with the International Monetary Fund. Uh, he is uh, director of the IMS African uh, Department. We spoke with leadership from Botswana uh, during the UN week and a number of other African countries uh, as well, of course, South Africa 
uh, as, as, as well in the dynamic of what I'm going to call sub-sub-Sahara Africa. You know, Amer- you know, Americans, I'm sorry, Abe, but we barely know the map. It's not much removed from Livingston and Stanley from another time and place. Way down beneath that demarcation of green and sand uh, is South Africa, is Botswana. Are they leading in terms of rule of law or are they now following other more stable countries with better institutions? I think Botswana is, uh, you know, again, uh, there's a tendency to generalize Africa and mm-hmm. see it as a, as a single country. But of course, there's tremendous heterogeneity. And I think Botswana uh, that you bring up is a great example of a country that's been growing 6-7%. It's right. actually an upper middle income country with very strong democratic and, polit- and economic institutions. Uh, South Africa also has very strong uh, you know, uh, institutions, uh, also been democracy since 1994. So mm-hmm. in terms of the quality of political and uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, judiciary, uh, independent judiciary, I think those are great examples. Well, Abid Salasi, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. With the IMF for 24 years, director of their exceptionally important Africa, uh, African department, I should uh, say, and of course, part of their effort as they move to Bali in Indonesia for their annual uh, meeting as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.